Good morning, you're listening to WTUL New Orleans News and Views. It is Monday, April 6, 10 a.m. I'm DJ Mimi. Thanks for tuning in with us today. We just wrapped up Democracy Now!'s daily show, and you've got another hour with us. Today, we'll start with a recording from a conversation hosted by the Blue House as part of their weekly coffee and conversation hours called FICA. These conversations have shifted online, as you might have guessed. Leading the discussion last week was Aaron Zagri, who is a staff attorney at Orleans Public Defenders. He'll share some information about how the courts, the jail, and the police are responding during the COVID-19 crisis. Thanks to the Blue House for hosting, recording, and sharing this conversation. And to learn more about the Blue House or tune into their weekly FICA hours, go to thebluehousenola.com or follow them on social media at thebluehousenola. Next at 10.30, we'll jump into Counterspin from fair.org. Today on Counterspin is Bama Athria on gig economy and COVID-19. The Wall Street Journal called frontline workers like grocery store employees and food deliverers unexpected heroes of the COVID-19 pandemic, which should prompt the question, unexpected to whom? The truth is the U.S. has always relied on low-paid, unprotected workers for all kinds of services. Only now it's called a gig economy and celebrated by some as some radical way forward offering workers flexibility and a chance to be your own boss. Strikes going on around the country right now are an indication of how workers themselves are reacting to this moment in which it's being made painfully clear that they are deemed both essential and expendable at once. For more on this conversation, stay with us till 1030 and we'll hear more from Counterspin. All right, that's it. Let's get into the show. Thanks for being here. I guess... Yeah, I wanted to start with um, kind of the obvious things when we're talking about jails, when we're talking about policing, and we're talking about uh, uh, a virus that spreads. All the recommendations that we're getting, social distancing, avoiding surface contact with, you know, people who also touch those surfaces, washing your hands very, very frequently. These are things that you cannot do in jail. In jail, you share everything. You share a room, you share very close quarters sleeping with everybody, um, share the same hygienic facilities and whenever you talk to your family or whenever you talk to your attorney, right now that is only happening over video visitation, which means you sit in the same chair that, you know, other people are using, you use the same phone receiver, and right now I'm not seeing much indication that those things are being cleaned on a regular basis. Um, All the things that we've been hopefully working really hard to avoid to protect ourselves, you have no ability to do when you're confined like that. Um, Add in that a lot of the people who are in our jail are already coming from vulnerable populations, already experiencing poor health outcomes that um, mean they have the risk factors that make COVID-19 particularly uh, dangerous to them. So to get the larger context, it's well known nationwide that this is going to be horrible in jails and prisons. And I'll use jails and prisons as a term kind of interchangeably. There, there are significant differences between them, but just places where we, you know, through law enforcement can find people. Um, so the main one in national media is probably Rikers Island, New York City's jail. Um, their chief doctor went on record and said, this is going to be a public health disaster. And what we've seen so far is that in a span of less than two weeks since their first detected case, they've ballooned to about 200 cases now. So we're just seeing exponential growth. And if it's a preview of what's gonna happen in New Orleans, 
200 at Rikers, yeah, I mean, we're, we're gonna be climbing exponentially as well is my guess. Um, Louisiana has the unfortunate distinction of the first two deaths of people in federal custody. Those happened at the Oakdale um, Federal Prison, and that's um, probably about three hours away, a little bit south of Alexandria, Louisiana. So if you go to Baton Rouge and just keep going, um, then you'll find yourself in that neighborhood. Uh, two people there have died. Um, and yeah, so I guess we'll just have people joining us. Um, the format here, I've got probably another 10 minutes of just down and then um, any questions during that time or obviously after that time would be great. So at this prison, this federal prison in um, central Louisiana, Oakdale, where two people have died, um, they've just stopped testing. Um, what they call that situation is sustained transmission. That just means there are so many people here, we presume that everybody is infected. Um, so why bother even testing to figure out who's positive and who's not? Those two are glimpses into the future. Um, at the Orleans Parish Prison, um, Orleans Justice Center, those are now two names for the same facility, um, as well as every single jail and prison nationwide. That's what we can expect to see in the future. So where we start with this discussion is the, you know, the moral standing point, which is when the state takes somebody into their custody, we assume care over that person. That includes people who are in jail. That includes people who are in jail for minor offenses or major offenses, for nonviolent offenses, for violent offenses, everybody. Uh, but on the outside, we have made a lot of mental compromises, a lot of distinctions between those categories, um, such that we realize that when we do sentence somebody to jail, we are exposing them to you know, more violence, including rape, um, including exposure to illness, which is particularly um, relevant right now. And we are lowering their quality of life. We are lowering their access to care. We are lower, lowering their life expectancy by putting them in jail. So implied in some of our moral decisions is that when we put somebody in jail, um, we are exposing them to, yeah, lowered life expectancy. And we are washing our hands of that because it's somehow tied into the morality of, well, you got yourself in that situation. But that's not where we should be thinking about it. That's not where we should be starting. That's not ground that we should be seeding when the state takes custody of somebody they we are they are responsible for that person's care um, and these are people in our community they deserve the same care as we should expect so then zooming in on new orleans unless there are any specific questions about that um, so the timeline then is i'm at the public defender's office i work in criminal district court that is the um, primary uh, state level court in New Orleans for adults. Alternatively, um, if you're a juvenile, then you'd be going to juvenile court. If you're being charged um, federal level, then you'd be going to federal court. This is just typically NOPD arrests you, you're an adult, you come to criminal district court. Um, the judges announced suspension of operations on March 13th. 
Um, and so the following Monday, everything went to Zoom. So we're either doing court like you guys are on a video conference right now, or um, sometimes just a telephone conference. What that means is hardly anything um, substantive is happening. We can't call witnesses. You're not going to get a trial. Um, no police officers are coming to testify. We're not having any jurors come in. Basically, you get arrested, you appear in front of a judge, you get a bond set. And to the extent possible, um, all the lawyers are going to all the judges and saying, hey, lower the bond on this person, release this person um, based on, yeah, um, health considerations, all the usual stuff as well. So March 13th, when that um, court closure gets announced, the population in Orleans Justice Center is 1,045 people lower than it has historically been, certainly much, much lower than around Katrina, uh, but we've been floating at around that thousand person mark. Uh, so that you can take as a baseline of, you know, how things would have gone business as usual. What we did was we filed a bunch of motions for release with all the judges, uh, arguing basically three things. One, that for people who are in jail, this is a bad situation because you're more likely to contract the illness. Two, um, it's bad for people who work at the jail, including people who work at the court, because you're coming into contact with these people. And as a result, a lot of people who work at the sheriff's office at the jail um, are exposed and are now testing positive. And third, that it's bad for the community, that anytime you have this kind of incubation nexus, people get out like they're going to transmit it. Um, the best thing we can do right now sounds like social distancing. This is one place where the government is effectively making that impossible. We argued those three things. The district attorney's office came back on record and opposed it with the arguments of their own. Uh, number one is that we could not prove that people in jail are at any sort of increased risk. Okay, we didn't formally write that down and that's why we followed up with about 150 pages of documentation saying, everybody is saying jails are bad for this. You are absolutely just lying if you're going to go on the record with a straight face and say you don't believe that. Um, number two, that the jail is especially or particularly well equipped to handle this because of their resources, sanitation procedures, whatever. Also not true to the point where the sheriff's office is somewhat signing on and saying, we need the extra space so that we can shuffle people around and quarantine different populations. Um, and so they're making some efforts in that regard, but no, the jail is not particularly well equipped to handle this situation. And then third, the one that really caught national headlines was this district attorney's office was arguing on the record in pleadings that you can read um, that okay, if the people in the jail are infected, then releasing them into the community is going to be a danger. So they are, by virtue of that, dangerous to the community. They should not be let out. Uh, and that one, yeah, caught a little traction in national headlines. Um, but yeah, so specifically the quote is, um, if the defendant is released on bond during the coronavirus outbreak and goes into public places, it will pose a threat to the general public by potentially spreading the virus to others 
and increasing the rate at which others are exposed to the virus. Somebody sat at a desk and wrote that down and then signed that piece of paper and submitted it to all the judges and set it on the record as a reason to keep people in jails. That's the situation in the courts. Um, next, we'll move on to NOPD. So um, Mayor Cantrell, Chief Ferguson, they both go on record and saying and said they're not changing any sort of policy um, about arrests. Um, Obviously, we, our partners, have been lobbying very, very heavily. You should absolutely change the policy on arrest because people who are getting picked up on old warrants, people who are um, not posing any sort of danger to the community, people who aren't going to have court dates in the near future anyway because courts are closed, why bother arresting them? Um, their official public stance is still no change in policy. I'm looking at online, they do have um, the city's website has a dashboard of arrests over time. And from what I can see, um, typical outside of Mardi Gras weekends, um, a typical arrest rate in New Orleans right now looks like, let's see, probably about 20 to 40 arrests per day. In the last week or so, it's gone down to about 20 or 10 to 20 arrests, so maybe cut in half. Can't tell if that's from a policy change or the fact that yeah, we're not going outside nearly as often. We're not interacting with other people nearly as often. Um, so arrests have gone down. Not exactly sure the reason for it. What we do know from some newspaper articles that were written as well as our own experiences in court is that we are still arresting people for what most people would consider minor or not urgent things. Um, so old warrants from 2018, 2017, where somebody has still been in the community and it has not been a serious dangerous issue. Big examples that were covered, I think either a Slate or Atlantic article about it, um, were uh, somebody who was shoplifting whiskey from a drugstore, somebody who was shoplifting from a grocery store, uh, somebody who was homeless or experiencing homelessness and uh, wouldn't leave a hotel lobby and when the police get went to get them, they had some prescription pills that they didn't have a prescription for. So all three of those people, police came in very close contact with them, arrested them, took them over to the jail, exposed them to the rest of the population there, exposed the rest of the population to them, um, and potentially made this whole thing a whole lot worse. So yeah, we're still arresting people who Especially now, I think it's, it's hard to argue that they need to be placed in, in confinement. What we have done, um, you may have seen in the news, so we filed a mass habeas petition just on behalf of everybody who's in the jail, release these categories of people. Um, we went after what we felt was the low hanging fruit, misdemeanors, nonviolent offenses, um, non-sex offenses and ask for their release. In response, the judges issued um, an order that looks like one that was very similar to one that was issued last year um, during hurricane evacuation or uh, recommendation evacuation times, um, where they ordered the release of, so, um, 
failures to appear on probation status, misdemeanor pretrials, contempt of court, and drug test remands, which sounds great because those seem very low level. The problem is they excluded anybody who had a domestic violence offense. Domestic violence um, does run the gamut from, you know, if you happen to be in a relationship with somebody and there is a battery committed where battery can be as little as spitting on somebody, pushing somebody, things like that, to ones that obviously we would consider more serious. Um, but it's a large portion of the people who get taken to jail. And so those are right off the bat excluded from release right now, um, including misdemeanor charges. Gun charges also um, excluded. Obviously, you know, there's fear on somebody, fear from somebody going around with a gun, potentially threatening others. But gun charges also include somebody who is carrying a gun, has no bar from being able to carry a gun, and happens to be concealing it in their pants or under their shirt without having the proper permit for it. Um, that's an arrest that happens very, very frequently. And I think it'll be hard to say that that's something that poses a direct threat to the community at any given time or now. Um, so when the judges issued that order, many of those people in that those categories had already been out. We didn't see the population of the jail appreciably lessen. Um, so it's unclear what effect that had through the entire roster of the jail again and found about 200 people who were there for nonviolent non-sex offenses, low-level offenses. Again, the low-hanging fruit that was not covered by um, that judicial order. So finally, where are we now? Um, in the courts, a scary thing is that at many levels of the criminal justice system, we have suspended people's constitutional rights. You might think of the most common ones, right to a trial, right to a speedy trial. In the event of some, in this case, a public health crisis, um, those rights are suspended. It's not the government's fault, as the courts read it, if we can't bring you to uh, trial in this typical time limit, if we can't force the DAs to file charges against you. It's not their fault. We can still keep you in jail. And so people are now in limbo sitting in jail indefinitely until the courts open back up um, without any ability to exercise their right to a trial. The context for the local current is um, current situation. So I'm looking at um, uh, I believe it's an open letter that came from the Tulane School of Public Health. So a short excerpt from that is that once confirmed COVID-19 cases are identified inside the jail, it will likely be too late to prevent a large epidemic in the jail population. And anyone working or residing there at that time will be at high risk of suffering from COVID-19. That's what we expect. And the situation that we're in right now is as of a couple of days ago, two people in OJC. Uh, the jail tested positive. Six tests are pending for people who are symptomatic um, out of 10 people who are tested. And so that is in the population of 
about now we're down to close to 800 people, 10 people have been tested. Um, contrast that with of the staff who works at the jail, 19 people have tested positive, 14 tests are still pending, um, but 37 staff members have been tested. Now there are not 800 plus staff members, it's just that the testing rate of staff is much higher than the testing rate of people who are incarcerated, um, which leads me, I think, to reasonably conclude that we are vastly under-testing the jail population. So I think right now, two positives is a gross underestimate or a gross undercount of how many are in um, positive in the jail, and that that number is going to balloon as it has at Rikers, as predicted by um, the Tulane School of Public Health, um, and to answer your question right now, the numbers at um, statewide for the um, juvenile system are five kids have tested positive. So where do we go from here then? Um, and I think this is the time to then probably just ease into discussions. Um, jail is an economic investment. Uh, jail, like many economic investments, is morally outrageous, um, but that hasn't stopped us from investing in it. So the people who run the jails, the people who run the courts, one of them is 14th Judicial District Judge uh, David Ritchie, who is a Louisiana judge who was just in the news for um, saying, as we all should know, the members of this particular population in jail are overwhelmingly drug addicts who have the worst hygiene of anyone in the community, other than the mentally ill. The drug addicts will be right back out using and stealing and getting rearrested, which is much more likely to introduce the virus into the jail and spread it in the community. These are the people who are running the jail. These are the people not running the system who are making life and death decisions about other people's lives. Um, where do we go from here? Well, what I'm seeing in national news, what I'm seeing in current events is we are making things happen that we've been told for a very, very long time could not be done. We are pulling trillions of dollars out of thin air and injecting into the economies, um, enough money that healthcare, enough money that could cover student debt forgiveness, uh, you name it, we could have been doing it all along. Um, some of that money is actually a small fraction of it, but is actually going to individuals. Um, we could have been doing that all along, it seems. We're releasing people from jail. We're taking fewer people to jail. Uh, and so for me, the secret is out. We could have been doing that all along. And so to conclude, jails are a terrible investment. They are public health nightmares. Um, the existence of jails and the people who are drawn to sending people to jails and the people who are drawn to keeping people in jails uh, means that we're going to continue this horrible economic investment of putting people in harm's way because we've come to believe that they deserve the consequences of, you know, whatever we like to believe their choices have been. So we need to stop looking to jails to solve social problems to solve medical problems um, because this is the predictable outcome. And when this settles, 
you know, we've got the jail population into the 800s. It hopefully will continue to decrease. And I think we'll find out that this city does not need to keep a thousand plus of its own people in a jail every single day. Uh, there's no reason that we should go back to that and we should fight extremely hard to uh, avoid seeding that ground. Don't you know talking about a revolution sounds Don't you know talking about a revolution sounds while they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around waiting for a promotion Don't you know, talking about a revolution sounds Who are people gonna rise up and get their share? People gonna rise up and take what's theirs. Don't you know you better run, 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 run. Oh, I said you better run, 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 run. Cause finally the tables are starting to turn. Talking about the revolution. Yes, finally the tables are starting to turn Talking about a revolution, oh no Talking about a revolution, oh While they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around, waiting for a promotion don't you know, talking about a revolution sounds And finally the tables are starting to turn Talking about a revolution Yes, finally the tables are starting to turn Talking about a revolution, oh no Talking about a revolution, oh no Talking about a revolution Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the Wall Street Journal called frontline workers like grocery store employees and food deliverers unexpected heroes of the COVID-19 pandemic, which should prompt the question, unexpected to whom? 
The truth is the U.S. has always relied on low-paid, unprotected workers for all kinds of services. Only now it's called a gig economy and celebrated by some as some radical way forward, offering workers flexibility and a chance to be your own boss. Strikes going on around the country right now are an indication of how workers themselves are reacting to this moment, in which it's being made painfully clear that they are deemed both essential and expendable at once. We'll talk about the gig economy with Bama Threya, Economic Inequality Fellow with the Open Society Foundations. That's coming up, but first a look back at some recent press. In a March 30th live appearance on the Fox network, Donald Trump said it was good that Democratic proposals for increased voting protections and ballot access, including vote-by-mail, same-day registration and early voting, as well as equipment and staffing to make voting safe during the pandemic, were not included in the coronavirus relief package. The things they had in there were crazy, Trump said. Quote, they had things, levels of voting that, if you ever agreed to it, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again, close quote. If Trump was guilty of saying the quiet part loud, as a number of commentators pointed out, the Washington Post can be charged with saying a straight thing crooked. In the Post's March 30th account, quote, Trump didn't expand on the thought but he clearly linked high turnout to Republicans losing elections. The most generous reading of his comment is that he was referring to large-scale voter fraud resulting from the easier vote-by-mail options. Trump has in the past baselessly speculated about millions of fraudulent votes helping Democrats in the 2016 election. The more nefarious reading would be that allowing more people to participate in the process legally would hurt his party because there are more Democratic-leaning voters in the country, close quote. Well, which do you want to be, generous or nefarious? And baseless speculation about fraud? That's also known as lying, right? So now the generous reading is that a person who has lied about this very thing is lying about it again. There had to be a clearer way to get that across. The reporter, Aaron Blake, would likely say, if asked, that he believes and thinks readers will take away that nefarious reading. Yet here we have the specter of voter fraud, debunked again and again, including in the Post, being legitimized by consideration. Reporters may think this is tactful, grown-up language, when it's actually misleading, milquetoast language that does the opposite of what journalism is meant to do, which is clarify issues, break down doublespeak, and help readers understand what's happening, which is that the president of the country has declared himself an opponent of one-person, one-vote democracy. We already knew that, but he said it out loud on the record. The thing to do would be to take him at his word— and to assume that his actions have been and will be of a piece with this expressed view. And if you really want to get wild, you might actually be critical of this anti-democratic position, call for resistance to it, and actually platform those who do resist it. Democracy dies in darkness, the Post's Trump-era branding tells us. True, but sometimes also in broad daylight, if you smother it with blah, blah, blah. 
There's a boilerplate passage that the Associated Press likes to insert into its stories on the coronavirus, as in their March 30th piece, under the headline, What You Need to Know About the Virus Outbreak. It's the first language after the heading, What You Need to Know. Quote, For most people, the coronavirus causes mild or moderate symptoms, such as fever and cough, that clear up in two to three weeks. For some, especially older adults and people with existing health problems, it can cause more severe illness, including pneumonia and death. The vast majority of people recover, close quote. Well, that sounds reassuring, doesn't it? Especially if you're not an older adult or a person with existing health problems, you might even be thinking, what's the big deal? Well, for one thing, existing health problems are extremely common. Half of American adults have high blood pressure, one of the most prevalent pre-existing conditions among COVID-19 fatalities, according to a study of Italian deaths from the disease. Other common illnesses associated with coronavirus deaths include diabetes, which affects 9% of American adults, and coronary heart disease, which affects 7%. Altogether, according to the Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, up to half of all non-elderly Americans have pre-existing health conditions. So the some that are liable to more severe illness may amount to most. African Americans, by the way, disproportionately suffer from high blood pressure and diabetes, as a race-aware media would be pointing out. A Centers for Disease Control report looked at domestically acquired cases of COVID-19 in the U.S. from February 12th to March 16th, a total of 4,200 cases, more or less. Of the patients whose ages were known, 70% were under 65. In this group, the hospitalization rates for patients 20 to 44 was at least 14%. For patients 45 to 54 and 55 to 64, it was at least 21%. Among the elderly, the hospitalization rate was about half again as high. Only patients under 20 had a hospitalization rate comparable to that of influenza, with at least 1.6% of cases in this group going to the hospital. Almost a quarter of the hospitalized patients required intensive care. Of these, nearly half were under 65. Only patients under 20, the report found, never needed intensive care. And some of those who require intensive care may never recover full lung capacity. These figures need to be understood in the context of the limits of the U.S. hospital system, which has less than a million beds and less than 80,000 intensive care beds. Even a small fraction of adults, elderly or otherwise, catching the coronavirus would risk totally overwhelming U.S. health care. The CDC's summary of its data sends a much different message than AP's boilerplate. Quote, COVID-19 can result in severe disease, including hospitalization, admission to an intensive care unit, and death, especially among older adults. Everyone can take actions, such as social distancing, to help slow the spread of COVID-19 and protect older adults from severe illness. Close quote. As for AP's claim that the vast majority of people recover... Of the roughly 140,000 U.S. cases to date, some 4,500 have recovered and 2,500 have died. The outcome of the rest has yet to be determined. In China, the only country where a major outbreak seems to have been brought under control, 93% of some 81,000 cases have been resolved, and of those resolved cases, 4% were fatal. 
By way of comparison, which AP's glib assurance to the vast majority fails to provide, the seasonal flu kills 0.1 to 0.2 percent of the people who come down with it. In China, officials moved quickly to pause economic activity and tested aggressively so asymptomatic carriers could be identified and isolated, preventing hospitals from being overwhelmed on a national level. The United States has so far failed to follow this example, and our major national news service lulling readers into a false sense of security only delays the time when we will begin to do so. Finally, you're reading stories about which corporations are doing right by workers, paying them, even through the closures made necessary by the pandemic. Reporting by BuzzFeed News says, hold up on that for a minute. BuzzFeed's Tasmin Nashrula spoke with workers from big brand stores like Ann Taylor and American Eagle, now soaking up praise for announcing they would pay workers through the downturn. And workers say they aren't actually doing that. Our associates are at the heart of what we do, and they will be paid for their scheduled shifts during this time, announced Gary Mudo, the CEO of Asena Retail Group, whose brands include Ann Taylor, Loft, and Lewin Gray. That's in his announcement. After BuzzFeed News reached out to Ann Taylor for comment, the part about paying store associates was removed from the statement. That's the kind of shady that's going on, with workers saying the companies misled not just the public, but their own employees, sending messages saying they'd be paid for scheduled shifts and then just dropping them from the schedule. One American Eagle worker learned she'd be paid for zero hours because she was a flex associate, a term she'd never heard before. It feels like a dirty trick after what they said, because I could have started working on another job somewhere else three weeks ago wrote Jessica Slack in a note to her manager, who replied, I understand how frustrating it can be. Just know that you are not alone. Well, yeah. These workers aren't saying they don't understand that the stores are closing, but that management was anything but clear about what it would mean for them right up until the last second, while promoting their compassion to the wider world. Says Slack, they shouldn't get the press they're getting for being kind to their employees when they're not. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. As millions of Americans shelter in place as a result of COVID-19 and those who go out avoid public transportation, the reliance on food deliverers and car services is unavoidably clear. For some, that's cause for celebration. So convenient, so helpful, but it ought to be raising questions. What does it mean to rely on but not recognize the precarious workforce, workers with low wages, low or no benefits, and no security? How can people be essential and expendable at the same time? As with so much of what's happening right now, the question is what's being learned from these workers' rare moment in the media sun? What, if anything, will change because of it? Because it turns out, having elite media call you a hero doesn't pay the rent. Our next guest works on this set of issues. Bama Threa is an economic inequality fellow with the Open Society Foundations. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Bama Threa. Thank you so much for having me on. 
Well, while some are calling for concern or empathy for frontline workers, others see this moment as evidence of the success of the so-called gig economy. You wrote a piece recently, I saw it on Common Dreams, that you say was spurred by the gleeful celebration of the gig economy that you were seeing in some quarters. Before we talk about what's the matter with that, what are these folks actually celebrating? What is the vision that's being promoted here? I think I can explain that best by explaining that I have uh, spent most of my career working on labor rights with workers in other countries and not the United States. And one of the interesting things about this year and the work I'm doing with Open Society Foundations is I'm looking at what's happening in the U.S. economy for the first time. But the fact is that kind of economy that's being celebrated by the 1% is, frankly, the same economy that's existed in a lot of other countries for a long time. It's the economy where if you are wealthy, you can find somebody to do anything you need doing. Go pick up your food or bring it to your door, you know, drive you around, clean your house, whatever service you need, you can get it. You can get it cheaply. Because people are in what we call precarious work, and most people are in precarious work. They don't have formal full-time jobs with benefits. They don't have regular wages. So this celebration of the quote-unquote gig economy here, most of it is really just what we're really witnessing is pushing people into this kind of precarious work in the U.S. You say that uh, some folks are even imagining that folks who are laid off from waged work or salaried work, like in the airline industry, that somehow the gig economy is going to absorb these people? Uh, The gig economy here, you know, if you kind of look at the positive spin on it that you hear in many quarters, it's celebrated as being flexible. I mean, the reality is, and I'm certainly not the first person who's, who's pointed this out, is you saw the rise of some of these app-based companies like Uber and Instacart and the like in the wake of the 2009 economic crisis and downturn. And at that time, you started to see these kinds of arguments of, oh, well, it's okay because, you know, people may be losing regular jobs, but this new gig economy will absorb everybody. You can always take your car, you can take your apartment, you can take whatever asset you have and get on a platform or an app and make some money out of it. That was Kind of the first time I started noticing and saying, well, this is what people do everywhere else in the world, right? So why is this a great thing when you see it start to happen in the U.S. economy? And now if you look at the kinds of reporting. I mean, one of the pieces I called out was the Wall Street Journal. I feel like if you want to know what that 1% wants to have happen post this pandemic in the recovery just read the Wall Street Journal editorial pages. They put it right out there, you know, and one of the things that they've been celebrating to that audience is the fact that more and more people will be in precarious work in the gig economy, and won't that be great for investors? Well, I just wanted to pick up on that. There was a study that came out in January from a workers' rights group in Washington State that found that contract delivery drivers for DoorDash, the food delivery service, were making a $1.45 an hour on average after their expenses were accounted for. And the company is promoting these jobs, as you've just said, as be your own boss, enjoy the 
flexibility of choosing when, where, and how much you earn. There's this pay model that makes it look on paper like workers are getting a decent wage when in reality some are making like right around zero, you know. But investors love it. There's a huge disconnect there, it seems like. It's a disconnect. I will say, like, I've seen the work that's been done in Washington State. The activists there are fantastic. I've done more of my interviews with people who are driving for Uber and Lyft and, you know, and other app-based ride-hailing companies. I think this is the business model, uh, and I don't think it's new. One of the things that we've seen in terms of how the financialization of various sectors has operated over the past couple of decades is that the markets, such as they are, reward companies that undermine formal wage employment with benefits, right? I mean, the more you can put people on short-term work and contract work and just-in-time and, you know, the more you can fracture regular full-time paid employment, the better your returns, right? And so just seeing that come into the transportation sector, I mean, that is the business model or the delivery sector, right? That is the business model. Yeah. The disconnect is only in sort of the forward face of it. And I guess it's more just kind of um, deception might be a better word. Well, well, so much of media is from a consumer point of view. So if you hear that, you know, precarious workers are suffering, it's as though, well, that's the fault of the people who use Lyft because the bus doesn't go by their house or that's the fault of you for ordering a pizza in your home. You don't have to reject the whole idea of a digital economy in order to think that it could be done more fairly and more humanely, right? I have to say this week has been quite a week, and I hope you are talking to some of the folks that are organizing the strikes of gig workers in you know, different parts of the country that have been going on all week. It's, it's been amazing to see. So that, I think, is the thing we all need to be doing is paying attention to those calls for action and supporting them wherever you can. Like, don't order from Instacart this week. Don't order from Amazon this week. Respect the fact that those workers are on strike. Sign petitions to the companies to give them the protective equipment and the benefits and the sick pay that they need. And I would sort of refer people to the Athena for All Coalition. I would refer people to coworker.org, to Gig Workers Rising. There's a lot of information being put out there right now about what we all can do to support these workers who are striking for just you know, the right to be safe and not be at risk of losing their lives to this terrible disease. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about a related set of ideas. You had a piece on Medium called a feminist stimulus that addresses the care work, as it's called, that is also being foregrounded right now. And I guess the failure to address that work as we talk about economic recovery. What are you getting at in this piece about care work and how it can be acknowledged? Sure. Thanks for asking about that. I mean, as we are looking at these large packages that are intended to sort of shore up the economy at this time, I do think we need to predict what's going to happen when the crisis is over, as eventually it will be, and we need to go into a long-term recovery because our economy is going to take a hit, and, you know, and global economies are going to take a hit for a long time. And I think we need to get ahead of some of the proposals that are being put out there and make sure 
this turns into a people's recovery that's good for people and not just good for market in the abstract. So some people have been talking about a universal basic income. That's fine. I mean, I think it's healthy to have those debates out there. But one of the things that's frustrated me for a long time of following the proposals around UBI, which is the shorthand for universal basic income, is that, like, largely written by men, and they're largely gender blind. And that was very frustrating because I literally kept seeing things in writings by, you know, people who are well-respected leaders in this field talking about how UBI was good for women because it meant that women could stay home and do care work and get paid for it. And that just ignores the obvious fallacy, which is that no one's paying women to do care work, right? I mean, care work is unpaid, largely, undervalued where it is paid, and that needs to get corrected. And UBI is not going to do that if we don't take some measures to stop that from happening. It will end up just reinforcing the notion that women should be doing unpaid care work. And I'll give you one example of that. There was actually a referendum in Switzerland a couple of years ago to provide UBI to every citizen. That went for a vote. It failed. But I read through some of the arguments that the proponents of that referendum had made at the time, and it was really interesting because the proponents that were out there trying to sell this you know, UBI proposal to the Swiss population were precisely making the argument that it would enable women to stay home and take care of kids. And that belied the reality that the men or the people who stayed in wage employment were still going to be getting that same UBI because it's a UBI, it's universal, right? So everybody gets it whether you work or not. So the women who were going to stay home were not going to get paid for care work. They were just going to get the stipend that everybody that was in the working world, the paid wage labor world, was getting. And, and this seems to be this fallacy that comes up over and over and over again, and I just, you know, wanted to put an end to that and to say if we are now recognizing that we will have many, many people in this society coming out of this coronavirus crisis that are sick, that are vulnerable, we will have communities at need, we will have poor children at need, we will need more care workers than ever, so we had better figure out how to start properly valuing and paying for care work. Because otherwise, there's going to be this huge, 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 enormous unpaid care burden, and guess who it's going to fall on? What we need to do, again, is quantify the value of the unpaid care work that's going on in our economy now, and then predict how much more is going to be needed during the recovery period. And let's figure out how to get the money into the economy to pay the people to do the care work that we're really going to need done. You know, media promote a fiction, usually tacitly, that economic fortunes are natural. You know, some work is just worth more than other work. You know, folks say, gosh, teachers work so hard, it really stinks that they don't get paid a lot. But it's as though nature wants it that way or something. Teachers just take a vow of poverty. God bless them. There's a notion of the naturalness of obtaining economic conditions that has to be resisted, but it's really not that easy to do that. I think even when you see good data from progressive economists, you also see a lot of sort of bad faith arguments out there 
about what will stimulate the economy. And I think it helps to just pull ourselves back to a central question, and that is whose economy? It is not an abstract thing, right? And so when you see the kinds of talking heads that you very often see called up for news programs, et cetera, and they are wealthy individuals, they are corporate CEOs, they are people who are doing very well, they are talking about the economy that benefits them. We need to start thinking about and talking about what an economy looks like that benefits your average childcare worker. And if that is the starting point and the premise and you're interviewing those people and asking them what they think a fair economy looks like, you do have to have, I think you're pointing this out, a change in the very way in which we conceptualize the economy. Well, let me just ask you for any final thoughts you have. Obviously, this is going to be the fodder in the news that we're going to be seeing for weeks and months now. Are there questions you would be encouraging reporters to pursue or, on the other hand, things you'd like them to not do, things to avoid doing? I would just encourage interview the people who are kind of on the front lines of this as much as possible. I super appreciate that you've reached out to me. I hope you're also interviewing people who are actually having to deliver groceries or or deliver, you know, take out food and, and getting their perspectives on what it's like to be looking at, you know, the realities of the healthcare that they're offered, the realities of the wages and the, the types of safety nets around them. You know, and I think that's where journalists really can play an amazing role. And I wish, you know, I actually wish we had more local journalists because I think one of our challenges now is that you need people who are also paid to go and interview people in the local communities about what's happening to them. Well, we've been speaking with Bama Threa. You can find her piece of Feminist Stimulus on Medium.com. And A Pandemic is No Time for Precarious Work on Inequality.org, as well as Common Dreams. Thank you very much, Bama Threa, for joining us this week on Counterspin. It's been great. Thank you so much, Janine. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The show's engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.